listeners. Welcome to Yeah, Uh Uh-huh with Lisa. And Phil. And our frequent flyer guest from California, Aaron. Boy, his arms must be tired. Hello. Hello. So so this week we have Robert Boog. B-O-O-G. And it's all about the bard, William of... Stratford-on-Avon. Stratford-on-Avon. Right. Yeah, we got Stratford and we have Oxford. Edward de Vere. Yeah. And... uh, be featuring bipolar disorder awareness. Did Shakespeare really write Shakespeare? That is our question today. Robert's written an excellent book called Shakey's Madness. And we're going to go over the more popular figure that the plays are attributed to, which of course is William Shakespeare. And then we're going to, in the second half of the episode, talk about um, Robert's uh, opinion of Edward de Vere. As 17th Earl of Oxford is the potential author. Mm-hmm. And I think it'll be a fascinating discussion. Welcome, Robert. Yeah. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my only nitpick was um, that you said one man wrote another's autobiography instead of biography. Oh, mm-hmm. thanks. I, I love it when people catch me on, on mistakes. So I'll, yeah. you know. but, uh, For instance, yeah. I am upset with John Lennon because he wrote an autobiography that did not include his child, Julian. It included Sean, but not Julian. Yeah, but he did that and intentionally. It he didn't, he didn't, you know, it wasn't a typo. Just because he yeah. intentionally eliminated his child. That's the difference between autobiography and biography. If someone did a biography and didn't include the kids. This is carryover yeah. from our uh, Beatles episode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay. I just like to get in that little dig. Are you an Anglophile, Robert? Not really. I'm not really. You know, I mean, um, I, I'm kind of lazy. So mm-hmm. uh, to give you an idea how lazy I am, you know, it takes like 97 days, five hours, and 32 minutes when the smoke alarm battery finally <laughs> goes out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm like that. I, I don't change things. I, I I'm so. Most of my research was done online. I go to mm-hmm. a website called uh, JSTOR. Mm-hmm. Um, so those people read all the books. They write essays or papers on them. Yeah. And so I read their stuff. And then once, um, once after I've read that, then I'll decide whether I want to check their sources and go from there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, when, I, when I was you're, reading you're, it. You're into Shakespeare, but not England per se. Correct. He said, okay. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm sure you you know you've read your share of Shakespeare, but it, it seemed to me that the book came from an approach of more of a, almost like a forensic study of his identity. Oh, the Adrian so Monk stuff. I, yeah. I love Monk. Yeah. Right, mm-hmm. Monk. Right. Phil, Philip is not a Monk fan. I watched the show. Philip did not. But interestingly oh. enough, my sister, mm-hmm. and I'll go ahead and say it, she was bipolar. Mm-hmm. Loved Monk. Yeah. Yeah. Loved him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a blessing. And a curse. the bipolar part? Yeah. Okay. Which Here's assistant that. do you prefer, Natalie or Sharona? I I prefer Natalie. I, 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 I Sharona kind of got on my nerves after a while, but. Yeah. She's good for Randy Disher, though. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, okay. That went over my head. Oh. Randy Elaborate. is, uh, yeah. He, he's the guitar playing. Yeah, the Randy yeah. Fisher project. <laughs> he's he's um he's one of the detectives at, at, at for I guess San Francisco police. Right. At, at oh Monk right, works. right. Monk's assistants. Yeah. I yeah. I I liked Natalie better too. No, oh, now you're back on the blonde, right? Or the first one. I liked the first one. Oh, you like you're a Sharona? Sharona. Person? Sharona yeah. was the first one. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, you know, he needed on the other hand. Natalie did kind of bring him out more. Sharona just propped him up, whereas Natalie pushed him up. So I guess maybe Natalie was better for him. But I have a tendency to be old school, so I kind of like the beginning, if you will. Well, Tony Shalhoub, I like him in Marvelous Miss Maisel. Yeah. I just, uh, for whatever reason, Monk, probably the very same things that you liked like about monk his idiosyncrasies his add all that stuff i guess OCD. those are the thing ocd yeah those are the things that i didn't really get into too much for whatever yeah. reason that's just mm-hmm. i don't know i'm more of a colombo mm-hmm. guy i guess mm-hmm. yeah. yeah but colombo was somewhat ocd i think that you know 
there were elements of Columbo in Monk. But the reason we're bringing it up is because Robert introduced mm-hmm. uh, Monk as a relatable character in his book mm-hmm. um, and established that and, and talked about uh, it kind of leads into his theory about uh, the nature of the man who wrote these plays. And so mm-hmm. why don't we start letting Robert talk about it from the yeah. standpoint of where did this come about? I, I think I read where you took a trip to England at some point. Oh, I did. Um, okay. So um, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I'm the fifth child in a family of nine children. So I have four older siblings and four younger so what that means to you is that I'm a very good ne- negotiator. I mean, I've been negotiating since I've been in diapers, right? So um, I had a sister who was like two years older than me, and she was um, kind of like a a teacher. So she would help me in my uh, schooling. So I did really well in school. I, I won a, a merit scholarship to UCLA, and um, my my major was English, and I actually won a Shakespeare sonnet writing contest. Ah, and uh, okay. so, one so um, in the book where you changed the lines. <laughs> well, no, oh, that, no, that, oh, that's no, you got a, an A for yeah. that. You got an A for that. Yes. Yes. So, mm-hmm. uh, okay. So I was now the, the classes at UCLA, if you can imagine you're sitting in a room where there's like 650 students and one professor down, you know, below. <laughs> and I always sat in the nosebleed seats kind of. And so he said, yeah, if you, um, if you, uh, you know, if you are picked in the top five, you will get an A on your um, final exam. And so I thought, how easy is that? All you have to do is write yeah, a sonnet, you know? So there's, there's motivation I, for a lazy man right there. <laughs> there you go. And uh, you were relate. allowed, you were allowed three uh, chances too. And so I looked around, there's 600 students and I'm thinking I can write better than all these people. Now what, like another, I think it was like three sessions later, he said, oh, by the way, I teach three of these uh, 1A classes. So all of a sudden that goes to more people. And then he said, and I've invited my 1B students in on this too. And he teaches two classes of 1B. So suddenly my it, a graph in my mind of me getting an A on this is like going down. But once he made your decision, he wouldn't allow you to change it. And so um, that became like one of the hardest things I ever had to do was uh, I had committed that thing. So just imagine on the day uh, that they're um, he's reading who won this uh, contest. Um, I'm this the the meeting place was packed. I couldn't even find a seat. I'm like trying to walk. Imagine like a church where there's like one seat in the very middle and you're tripping over people's feet and uh he's taught i mean he's reading one of the sonnets aloud there's two people on stage i was late i didn't know like where i um you know where uh where, you placed. where i placed and um then he said uh you know he says robert boo you know so i came down there he said you won first uh third and fourth place nice so, I d- yeah. yeah, I, I kind of aced that. So I had first, in my head first, third and fourth. Yeah. The other two people on stage were second and fifth. I see. So, um, yeah. So I had in my head kind of like how he thought and how, how he probably wrote a sonnet, I think. Oh, you, you had, you were allowed to enter multiple sonnets. Yeah. It? You had three. Okay. Yeah. So three chances. So with that, and then, um, and that same, and the next quarter, I took another Shakespeare class, and that ins- uh, professor was the one where I wrote the the sonnet in the in the class, and she m- had made a remark that um, we know more about Jesus Christ than we do about the life of William Shakespeare, and that kind of like sat in my brain, thinking like, how can that be? I mean, that just doesn't make sense. And I had a trip to Europe. I went to Europe. Um, or to yeah to Europe that summer, and I spent some time in England. And when <clears throat> when we got to uh, Stratford upon Avon, I was thinking this is all wrong. I mean, this I, it was kind of like coming to California, and you imagine going to Disneyland, and they take you to like the San Fernando Valley or something. Yeah, it just seemed like this this can't be. So um, that sat in, sat in my head. Then 
I kind of forgot about things until um, in 2019, my wife and I were, were uh, celebrating Christmas. My wife's from Guatemala, and uh, they have a thing where you give your gifts on Christmas Eve. So Christmas Day is more of like uh, crashing on a couch and drinking like <laughs> drinking a bottle of champagne and falling asleep basically and she sounds like my kind of christmas <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh we she put on this uh, movie called um nothing is truer than truth or something like that and it was about the um you know it was about edward de vere the 17th earl of oxford mm-hmm. and how and what the director does is take you on a visual tour and you can you can rent this or you find it on Netflix. I think we saw it on Prime. Uh, What's it Amazon called again? Prime. Nothing is truer than truth. I fell asleep watching. Not, it wasn't because it wasn't interesting, but it was so late at night that I fell asleep watching that last night. I watched maybe about 35, 40 minutes of it. Very interesting. Yeah, <clears throat> so what's interesting to me, or it, what interested me is just seeing these places. And uh, when they talk about, you know, uh, in Shakespeare, he talks about the sycamore trees growing on the north side of town and then there you see a grove of sycamore trees it's kind of thing that really interested me after that we went to um have dinner with my son about a month later and i was all revved up about this movie and um i'm raving about it and my son my two sons are like listening to me on the ride back i learned that my wife was not very um happy with that movie at all and she said why couldn't anyone be the author i mean why couldn't someone with brown skin or black skin have written the shakespeare canon Mm -hmm. why that why is it that guy and um so then i um i did a little bit of uh research and um there's um two shakespeare scholars sir stanley wells and paul edmondson who wrote this 40 page little thing um i forget it's it was called like a shakespeare uh, I, I don't know. It was some little booklet like that. And basically what they argued is that no one's disputed Shakespeare's authorship in the last 400 years. So it doesn't make sense to try to have anyone now. And then if you did, there are 77 other people who could be um, William Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And there is no proof for anyone else. And so that's really where it started. I wanted to answer my wife uh, and convince her that um, that. This guy, Edward de Vere, most likely was the author of the Shakespeare canon. So there is no smoking gun, right? There's no smoking gun that says that William Shakespeare is definitely not the author. Right. But there's a, there's a preponderance of... of so uh, circumstantial circ- evidence, if you will. Circumstantial, right. That suggests that it would be very difficult to make a case that he was the author. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, that's my proposition based on and, the latin and greek sources of and of the works that everything's based on and, and law knowledge and the yeah, lack that, of letters yeah there's zero uh, okay so um when i first started writing it um if you or if you watch the movie uh, nothing is truer than truth they actually show you a portrait of um of um adonis that was painted by the painter titian Mm-hmm. Now, Edward de Vere spent about a week at Titian's house back in 1576. And Titian painted uh, Adonis wearing, he had two paintings of him, one without a hat and one with a hat. The one with a hat, I think there's only one in the world. And Titian passed away later in 1576. And in 1580, his son sold the house. He sold the painting to like the, the Tsar of Russia. And it got shipped off to Russia. So nobody would have seen that painting. And yet Shakespeare Mm -hmm. writes this poem in 1594 or 1593 uh, where he mentions Adonis wearing a bonnet or a hat. And there are just so many little details when you talk, I mean, when you get into it. So my uh, book is really to encourage people to reexamine things, don't just take yes. people's words for it because we've been told this stuff for uh, like 400 years but now with the internet anybody can be an armchair detective and double check uh, <clears> just <throat> see for yourself and it, it's it's kind of crazy but um it looks like shakespeare 
was not the author of the works attributed to William Shakespeare. Yeah. I saw that. Uh, I, was, I hung in with the film long enough to see the painting you're talking about. They, they showed one version without the bonnet, and then it kind of faded into the next one with the bonnet. So that was a that's a pretty compelling piece of circumstantial evidence, I would say, that it appeared in the, you know his works. Right. And at that time, you didn't put stuff on social media. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you weren't well, so, there, you didn't see it. Yeah. The, the other thing is Titian was a great, um, uh, great at self-portraits. So he started when he was younger and then all the way till he was like 80. So he had to use a mirror, right, for a self-portrait. And mm -hmm. I, I think at a certain point, I think that's what um, the author of the the sonnets was doing he was taking a mirror and looking at himself and writing that that's my own again it's an original idea that yeah uh could be totally wrong but i think what i've discovered when i w won this sonnet writing contest thing it's easier to write a sonnet when you have a picture in front of you and then you start describing it it makes it so much easier and i right. think that's that is possibly what he did when you talk about that didn't Leonardo, or isn't it a theory that Leonardo uh, used himself as the model for Mona Lisa and maybe some of his other works? Yeah, I, I haven't heard that one, but that could be. Okay. First drag queen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'd never heard that about Mona Lisa, but it's an interesting Really? One. Yeah. I'd heard that That's before. surprised. I don't know. Yeah. I'd heard that before, but anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what? Well, had the I one mean, famous... You know, self-portrait i think it's kind of red tinted all the time you know the one i'm talking about yeah yeah he's older right yeah so in your book and in some of your informative youtube videos you go into detail of you know facts that kind of disprove that uh shakespeare william shakespeare be. was was the writer and so looking at so william stratford upon avon so that was the town that you visited when you had the sense of serendipity that something was amiss, right? But didn't William, he, he grew up in a town that was more like five miles outside of Stratford-upon-Avon, right? Is that right? That, that's what my research, uh, you know, indicates. And there's, uh, you can go to the um, the website Shakespeare Documented. Um, it's put on by the Folger um, Library. And it's the world's greatest resource for uh, all things Shakespeare. And um, you can actually click on a document from 1570, and it says two conveyances of property by um, William Sheldon, and uh, where John Shakespeare is listed as a tenant of this this farm. And he has two two parcels. One is a 14-acre parcel, and the other is 107 acres. And we know that later um, Shakespeare purchases in 1603, um, 107 acres from John Combe, who's listed as one of the tenants of William Sheldon, along with John Shakespeare. So is that coincidental? I, I don't think so. So, mm -hmm. um, so he yeah, got some money and he bought his family farm. Yeah, that the family lost, I think, mm -hmm. because um, in 1575, um, John Shakespeare purchases uh, two messuages in the town of, of Stratford-upon-Avon. Mm -hmm. And this, I think, is today what we would call the Shakespeare Birthplace uh, Trust. Oh. And um, that's where, um, I, again, this is just my, my own observation. Um, they were evicted from this farm and had to move to town. Right? And there, I think back then there was a lot of shaming with that. And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. he vowed, if I ever get money, I'm going to buy that farm back kind of thing. Um, I think that's what, what happened. Okay. Now, be, I, I'm in real estate, so I see that kind of thing where people do try to get properties that they've lost in the past, and they will pay um, a higher more price than, 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 yeah, more than market value just because it's, it means something to them. Right. Mm -hmm. But um, so William... If he did reside five miles outside of Stratford, the type of education that he would have required to learn Latin, for instance, would have forced him to, to make that journey to school every day, right? To um, Because they didn't have that type out, out in his farmland. He didn't have that type of uh, information or 
knowledge readily available or education. Take about an hour and a half probably to go five miles on yeah. more or less flat. So you're starting to see that it's already As kind of it's the momentum for him to Which start to accrue kind of this type of education and background is already becoming uh, difficult in his early life. Mm-hmm. Right. And <clears throat> there are um, other sources for um, for the original books. Or if if you just look in the time period between 1590 through 1594, you'll see that some of the sources used in um, – some of the plays back then, one was in Spanish, one was in Italian, and there's a lot of Latin. And um, he would have to have been an expert in Latin uh, in order to meet the timelines for these uh, creation of poems. Um, for example, just to, if you just looked at the year 1594, for example, in 1594, the play, um, The Comedy of Errors, was performed on stage on December 27th. And um, Shakespeare uh, experts will tell us that this is proof that William Shakespeare wrote the play and um, was an actor in it because he was paid in 1595 20 pounds or the, the company was paid and his name was on the payroll list for being paid. However, um, if you backtrack from that, the, the play itself was based on a book called Monogamy, which was... Um, a Latin book that he would have to have translated himself because there were no translations in England um, in English at that time. So he would have to translate that book. But at the same time, uh, in 1594, May of 1594, was the printing of The Rape of Lucrece. And The Rape of Lucrece, again, you have these uh, timelines. The Rape of Lucrece, before it was printed, would have to be approved by the uh, the archdeacon or um, the Archbishop of Canterbury. So the Archbishop of, Bishop of Canterbury has to approve it before it can be printed. So he's got to be able to read it. And how long is he going to take to read, you know, a 40-page uh, poem? You know, um, so um, The Rape of Lucrece is based on, you know, um, tons of Latin books, again. Um, Livy's The History of Rome I, I said that uh, in my book, I say that uh, it was based on 35 um, books written by Livy. It's actually a staggering 142 volumes. And so mm. I say that he may have used um, eight volumes or 18 or 12, maybe. You said 12, yeah. 12, yes. I said 12. And um, Shakespeare scholars say he only used one volume. Like, <laughs> uh, mm. So that's where the discrepancy, you know, one of them is. Um, and if you look at the one volume, uh, if, if it's one volume, the first volume is 500 pages. So 500 pages in Latin that you've taken minimal Latin. Um, then add to that, the other source for the Rape of Lucrece is six books called The Fausti by, written by Ovid, which was not translated until 1644. So you have, um, you have someone who has to create a poem that's not that easy to do, number one, but number two, it's based on all these Latin works that um, we're told by experts he had to have read in order to co- compose this poem. Right. Mm-hmm. But w- so, when you add up all the sources, it, it just doesn't make sense. It requires well, an aristocrat or somebody with a tremendous amount of education well, from an early age. and Specifically the- someone who lived in like the Cecil house where the there is these works were in latin and in greek and mm-hmm. they were Italian already there. And spanish yeah well, cecil, like- cecil house had over two thousand books in it now the next person who had uh i think sir walter raleigh had like 300 books so it's mm-hmm. it's just like uh night and day not not that many people had that many books um number one uh, and then also i think you have to take into account um what appears to have been a bit of a shaky childhood. Um, his father appears to have been something of a grifter, um, if you right. will, based on, you know, what we've, what we've seen here. And when you come down to it, uh, his hobby of money lending, uh, you know, I mean, I think it's significant because that's one of the careers that his father aspired to. But it just seems like his childhood might have been a bit shaky. Now, now I'm not clear on how many siblings he had. 
Shakespeare? Um, are you asking if uh, about William's family? Yes. yes. He came mm-hmm. from a family of seven. Okay. Yeah. So now was um, he the second son or the no, third? he was the oldest. He was oh, the oldest. He, he, and then he had a son named Gilbert. Now back then Catholics, which, uh, okay. So prior to Queen Elizabeth, there was Queen Mary and they called her Queen uh, Bloody Mary because she was Catholic and she hated Protestants and she would kill Protestants basically. So if you were not Catholic, you were killed. So John Shakespeare, William's father, was brought up under Queen Mary's rule. And um, so he would have been a Catholic, or at least he would have attended mass and things like that. So then things changed when Elizabeth um, took over. And so you have that uh, kind of thing when your father's Catholic and he, and he, you know, is a staunch Catholic. Back then, Catholics did not believe that the oldest child should be schooled. Mm-hmm. That would be the, he would be the one to inherit the property under the primogenitor kind of thing. The second mm-hmm. son, Gilbert, would be the one because the only people, Catholics believe the only people that needed to uh, be able to read were bishops and priests because they would read the Bible for everybody else. So yeah. that's why it, if you look at the signatures of William Shakespeare and his brother, it, it looks like night and day. It looks like uh, a little kid was William Shakespeare and Gilbert's mm-hmm. is uh, nice and neat. And Gilbert never married too. So you mentioned um, Elizabeth the first bloody Mary. Elizabeth's first father was King Henry the eighth. Who of course had a lot of blood on his hands, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know, executing it or beheading his wives who would not give him a son, but uh, Elizabeth kind of inherited some of his tendencies so this was an environment, there was an author named Sir Gelly Merrick, who was executed for producing a play that was critical of, was it critical of royalty? Oh, okay. So Elizabeth no, um, no, what, there is uh in 16, um, in 1601, there was, uh, they call it the Essex rebellion where, or, uh, what happened was they had, uh, Queen Elizabeth had not named um, who would inherit the throne after her death. So um, they, these guys had an idea. Well, um, let's have her watch a play um, called Richard II, which if you look in, um, you know, everything has William Shakespeare's name on it. He wrote the play. He's on the playbill. He's on, on the first court hose. Um, everybody knows that it's written by William Shakespeare. So, um she sees this play where they added the scene and in the scene, the King gives up his throne. He assigns his throne and then he's put in jail. (laughs) And um, Queen Elizabeth uh, watches this play. And then she is not a happy camper. And um, the person who played, who paid for it was a man named uh, Sir Jelly Mayrick. And he was, um, promptly uh, drawn hung and quartered um the other guy um so uh just imagine um the 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 plan was she would watch this play then like a hundred men would ride in and uh say give up your your throne you and uh, assign it to me basically and they expected this big mob to be there a big crowd which uh didn't happen so when they ride into t- to town um there's nobody there except soldiers all everybody just takes off and what is left is you know the earl of um essex and the yeah uh, but in, in other Robert words Rosen. well okay, otherwise, now- why, why, i mean but it's a situation where mm-hmm. who wants the fame who wants the recognition for these plays you know you don't mm-hmm. you know uh you, it, you, you'll be killed potentially exactly. for mm-hmm. your art it's like you know. it's like an alan smithy film william right. shakespeare now, play yeah. <laughs> now I, I have a question about that was it just the richard the second play or she had spies upon spies upon spies so why didn't the crowd show up well, could the- that be a factor in you know jelly being eliminated as opposed to shakespeare because yeah, probably, he was actually involved she, in rebellion. Yeah, she probably got wind of it and said, hey, let's set a trap for them. Uh, that's what I think. I mean, it, 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 to me, that makes sense. And yeah. um, she just, but um, another person who wrote a play that was critical 
not of the queen herself, but of the government, was Ben Johnson. He wrote a play called Isle of Dogs. And um, what, as soon as the play came out, he was thrown in jail. So my question is really like, what, why didn't anything happen to William Shakespeare? He was really a co-conspirator because he had written the play. The guy who paid for the performance was, you know, met a horrible death. Yeah. The other, the other guy who happened to be there, you know, um, was beheaded. Mm-hmm. Another guy was thrown into prison. So um, it just uh, begs the question, why, why not? And um, I think to me that what is what I've been looking at lately is what they call an alonym. An alonym is like someone who uh, is in place of someone else who stands in another person's place. Like um, in um, like in 15 in the early 1590s, um, this guy, Henry Rossley, he was uh, the um, one of the richest guys in the world. He was a young heir. He was living at Cecil House. He was being brought up by William Cecil. And he is the dedicatee of Venus and Adonis and the Rape of Lucrece. So um, we've been told the story that the reason that Shakespeare wrote um, Venus and Adonis and the Rape of Lucrece was to earn a, a patronage from Henry uh, Rosley. Now, um, the thing was, Henry Rosley at the time was underage. He was living at Cecil House, where William Cecil would, um, you know, take all of his mail. <laughs> I mean, that was the only way to communicate with him. And mm-hmm. um, so the other thing was, William Cecil was the grandfather for um, Edward de Vere's uh, children. And Edward de Vere, I don't think we've introduced him at all yet. Not yet. No. But, uh, Not enough. He, he, is, he is the... Uh, the main character we'll call Oxford, Oxford who yeah. um, was, I believe, the real William Shakespeare. Okay. So Oxford, so yeah. Let's take a break here for our sponsored, and we come back and we talk about Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford. Yeah. All right. Okay. So we're back yep. with Robert Boog, author of Shaker, Shaky's Madness. And we're about to talk about Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford. Right. So, yeah, what uh, what's remarkable about this individual in the story of Shakespeare? Well, um, we t- in my book, I mentioned that the, the real author had to be an expert in Latin. And Edward de Vere, at age four, went, was sent to live with uh, Sir Thomas Smith, who was a Cambridge uh, scholar, lecturer, mm-hmm. author. And he believed that um, it was easier for boys to learn gra- um, Greek first and then Latin. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he started uh, teaching. He and his wife had no children at that time. And so he, they uh, started uh, teaching Edward at a young age, not only Greek and Latin, but French, Spanish, and Italian. And um, at age eight, uh, Edward de Vere attended um, Cambridge University. So um, we hear of Mozart composing his first opera at age eight. And, uh, and, and we generally, you know, think that someone who's attending college today at age eight um, is, you know, pretty smart, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and so when you have um, back then to attend a university, you had to be proficient in Latin. And uh, this is what Edward de Vere was doing at age eight. Um, plus, he came from you know, a higher education where or he was, a, you know, an aristocratic family. And back then, those families would have had to known other things like uh, falconry, uh, heraldry, shooting, horsemanship, all these other pursuits that the average person was just working all the time. They just didn't have time for these other things uh, like falconry. Have a clue about, yeah. Having clean clothes yeah. and going to the bathroom took up probably two or three hours of your day. Yeah. yeah. And um, so we see all of all of these things mentioned in. OK, so uh, um, one of the things that we see in the works of William Shakespeare is an extensive knowledge of mythology, literature, legal terminology, astronomy, philosophy, heraldry, horticulture, mathematics, arts, music, and even pastimes such as dancing, bowling, playing tennis. And so. Um, we see these in the Shakespeare plays, but a commoner coming from 100 miles away from London, where would this person pick that stuff up, really? 
Um, the distance, you know, to give you an idea, you know, um, Bakersfield is 100 miles from downtown Los Angeles. Bakers- Bakersfield, people kind of, you know, you're, you think of country music and you think of like rap music in downtown L.A. I mean, it's right. kind of like there's there are two different cultures. And yeah. yet we're trying to uh, give credit to this person who lived, you know, miles away from where, you know, he would have known these things. Right. right. Kind of like Louisville and Cincinnati. It, it would have actually. made sense if he wrote about the common man more. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Than the, you know, than aristocracy and, uh, and royalty. Because you tend to, your art tends to be what you know if it's successful. Yeah. Correct. And also, if you look at the, the, in the first folio, 34 of the 36 plays are talking about the ruler, the, the Lord, the, I mean, uh, we're talking about all of these, uh, you know, basically royals. And um, how would how would this person from, you know, uh, and okay, so the, we're told that he would have learned this from books or it was anybody would have known kind of thing. And so uh, I, it's just that I don't buy that. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it's to me, it just doesn't make sense. He would have had to have been extraordinary, shown to be extraordinary from early on, Um and then for, for me, the telling thing is the lack of letters. Yeah. Well, and the people that support the theory that William upon Avon was the, the bard are very adamant about it. I mean, they're very passionate mm-hmm. about preserving that um, uh, history or legacy. You know, it's uh, it's something that people go to war or go to go to battle over, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's it, it is true. P- people get uh, real uh, like you're trying to take something away from them, or um, that's mm-hmm. my um, you're that's my favorite uh, person kind of thing, or so, uh, it's almost like a cult or something. It's it's yeah. it is it's really kind of weird, but right, um, yeah, like this person was touched with genius, you know, that from these meager origins. Just you know, I hate to say it, but almost like a messiah, you know, he was touched with the the gift. That uh, you can't comprehend, you know, and, and that's difficult for people to believe well, in science and empirical stuff to grasp. So. Well, I think the, the, the other part of it is, though, that um, there is all the, the direct evidence is William Shakespeare. His name is, is found here, here and here. And therefore, mm-hmm. you should believe it. That's, you know, um, usually prima what facie. Uh, that's circumstantial the, yeah, at best. The prima facie case mm-hmm. for scholarship. And that's um, where... They will, um, you know, it's kind of like a broken tune on a record. You said it's that, so it's that. Exactly. Yeah. Now, uh, does Stratford and Avon have a um, a financial culture, if you will, based on William William being from there? Oh yeah, and it's it's planes? like an eight million dollar a year industry now. I mean, well, when you go not. there, that's all you you see people. It's kind of like a swap meet where they have all these T shirts. People, you know, instead of let's eat let's eat kids you'll see like uh uh, you know like william was here or was Mm -hmm. william here you know i don't know right or busts of him or likenesses of him on uh signage and oh yeah it's 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 a big it's a big booming thing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. really roughs mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. um yeah right right Pirate shirts like Seinfeld. Well, now, now the <laughs> really frilly ruffs, was that a stage affectation or was that uh, a, a, a royal thing? Was that common? Do you know? All of the portraits of people from that time have the frilly ruffs. So I guess yeah, was, but the portraits are only going to be. Um, you got you dressing well, in your best and that was the lacy stuff coming out of your neck, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about um, the the picture that you see in the first folio? It's called the the Martin Drosch shout uh, portrait. Is mm-hmm. he's wearing a corset, but it's backwards. The the um, normally mm-hmm. the the buttons would be in the back, and that's yeah. why people have claimed that um, it's a mask. That that yeah. the picture there is a mask. That's weird. Just to go off on a tangent here, whenever I step outside, I start getting hit. I start getting bit by insects. And one of their favorite mm-hmm. targets is my neck, right? I wonder if that mm-hmm. has anything, you know, when you think about the illnesses uh, and stuff that were the rough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I wonder if it had any kind of practical application, like any kind of like, you know, protect me from 
uh, bug bites or something. <laughs> not impossible. <laughs> but not Maybe. likely, I guess. Mm-hmm. No, well, I mean, I think it kind of makes like sense. Putting mosquito netting around you, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But but, the- but kind of like a little bit open so that it's not like a scarf that would keep you warm and toasty and well, it, it would be good air conditioning against, against uh, vampires. Yeah, yeah there you oh, go. Yeah. <laughs> good point. But you see these ridiculous things that they wore back then, and you think, Come man, they had to be scented. 95 to 100 degrees sometimes when they're mm-hmm. walking around in these big overcoats. And the, yeah. But anyway. All this material. Yeah. But getting back to uh, DeVere, there's some other bits of, inf- uh, bits of evidence that uh, like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, um, it's not likely that William Sha- these were real people, right? Correct. It's not likely that William Shakespeare may have met them in his travels, right? I mean, again, we're talking about someone of means. Yeah, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern were the, the courtiers for King Frederick II. And um, so they were actual living, breathing people. And a, a lot of people today just think of them as like maybe sidekicks in, in a play by Tom Stoppard or just um, these guys that were in Hamlet. But um, if you actually um, look at the the history that um, uh, Bertrand or Peregrine Bertie was the English ambassador to Denmark, and um, he actually met with these people and wrote about them in his journals. So um, the idea that William of Stratford would somehow come into contact with um, Bertie seems you know, um, questionable. Whereas, uh, Edward of Oxford was, um, his brother-in-law. So would he, the idea was maybe they would laugh over, um, dinner or something and he would regale him with stories about, um, King Frederick because after he would drink a shot, he would fire off a cannon and, um, you know, skull. And, uh, that was and not there's known. There's no way, no yeah. way that Stratford would have known that. Correct. Yeah, there's and just now King Frederick was German, correct? Danish. Oh, Danish. Okay. Well, the man might have been German, but he was the king of Denmark. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't know enough about him. He was Hitler's favorite historical figure, apparently, other than Friedrich <laughs> Nietzsche, I guess. <laughs> Interesting. Maybe it was the canon thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> um. So we're leading up to we're stating it. We have J.T. Townsend on sometimes, and he talks about uh, the circumstantial the evidence. True crime guy, yeah, right. It, it's a rope with uh, enough strands to make it strong. You take away one strand, this rope is still strong, and that that's mm-hmm. is that's as uh, conclusive as DNA evidence. If you have enough strands of circumstantial evidence in your rope, so. We're talking. We're building a case here for Devere, seventeenth-century Earl of Oxford, as the potential writer of the Shakespeare uh, works. And one of the other things that you cite in your book are health issues that present themselves over and over, multiple times. That uh, that Devere may have had his own himself conditions he may have had himself yeah what um i guess where i go uh, my original um hypothesis is that edward de Vere may have endured uh, epilepsy as a child which morphed into bipolar disorder later in his life and the evidence of the epilepsy is because of all the fainting that um i, I noticed the fainting but then i decided to do a google search and discovered that a british physician actually went through every single line of it every work done by uh, written by Shakespeare. And he discovered um, something like uh, 21 instances of um, fainting under um, by, or by reason of uh, just now my mind's slipping me, but uh, of strong emotion. So um, then he has, he actually has 10 instances of death by strong emotion that I didn't, mentioned in my book too but um so so, okay so when you see a shakespeare play there's almost like a 25 percent chance that someone will faint so why is that if um if shakespeare never fainted or never 
had any kind of um, symptoms of of anything. Mm-hmm. Really, he was just a, a normal guy. Mm-hmm. And especially if it's untreated, and a lot of conditions were, if not un, if if not untreated, not sufficiently treated, um, epilepsy or, can or lapse into mm-hmm. uh, mistreated, a, mistreated, and put in a dark room, or yeah, yeah. put leeches on you or whatever. Yeah. Um, the uh, devil made him know it. Epilepsy can can evolve into mm-hmm. adult uh, bipolar uh, disorder, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. And that's the the mm-hmm. treatment back then for epilepsy was something really? called um, mamia or mummy. And um, Shakespeare mentions it, especially like in Othello. It's kind of like a plot hole in Othello, where. Um, Desdemonia has Othello's mother's handkerchief. So she couldn't just go to a chest of drawers and pull out another handkerchief because um, Othello's mother's handkerchief had been dipped in Mamiya. So therefore it had to be um, used. And Mamiya, you know, is talked about in some other place too. But um, how would you know about, you know, what Mamiya smelled like or looked like, especially if dipped on a handkerchief? Um, unless you had actually used it or experienced it. And Mamiya was pretty expensive because it was shipped in from Egypt and it was created by crushing up the bones of um, and, and parchment of these Egyptian mummies. And then they would sell it to the apothecaries in England. So it was shipped all the way from England. It was expensive stuff, but it was the treatment back then for epilepsy, basically. And um, so here we have all these instances like 21 instances of mummy. <laughs> yeah yeah the essence of mummy um and actually people would eat it too that, i i learned mm. that uh the other day so that's kind of crazy um but yeah. um mm-hmm. anything to treat this because people just didn't a pinch really... between your cheek and gum <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> some people just didn't understand mm-hmm. what was happening and they wanted some something to uh anything help. yeah anything yeah yeah. And, um, and it at least gives the illusion of it's a pretty desperate measure. Mm. Well, uh, back then, I, you know, undiagnosed um, bipolar disorder, undiagnosed epilepsy, um, they really didn't have a, a, a real good clue on, on what it was. But it also you have gives, to wonder um, what would drive someone to come up with that, though. <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Of all things, <laughs> <laughs> let's yeah. eat some dead guy. Yeah. Money. But, yeah. It was an attempt to capture soul or re, re, it was probably resuscitate expensive a soul. And the people in Egypt were like, well, why not? Some grave yeah. robber, you know, yeah. thought, let's try this. Yeah. But it, and mm-hmm. just the, uh, that might have the, been the mummy. Snake oil huckster was mm-hmm. selling, helps. selling mummy. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't really, you know, mummified mummy. That's, that yeah. demonstrates a pretty deep knowledge of the treatment of mm-hmm. that type of illness that, that yeah. only yeah. someone that may have experienced it may know. So, you know, definitely yeah. it's another mm-hmm. good piece of evidence. Um, a lot of, are, lot of despair and despondency too. And, and especially yeah. epilepsy would not be necessarily, I'm thinking, spoken of because there was a religious connotation. Oh, yeah. So one of the treatments was um kind of like let's beat the devil out of this person so they would hit you know hit him with the stick and then you know put him in a dark room and that was supposed to uh cure them mm-hmm. so um that and we see that in um as you like it and uh 12th night where malvolio is uh, the priest gives him an exorcism kind of thing or you know uh so there there's just um he pointed he, out it, out there Broke, um, broke the windows in uh, mm-hmm. one of the rooms at at the house because this was possibly... in when he was yeah when he was attending college at um, Queens College and uh, Cambridge University. So here he is, an eight year old child, and uh, they um, you know why would you have uh, you know why would you punish someone like that? I mean, um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It just seems kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've we've uh, presented a few pretty compelling pieces of circumstantial evidence. But what do you think is like, is there a smoking gun? Uh, there's not a smoking gun. We already established that. But... We've, got, we've got poems that um, Albert yeah. wrote. Uh, 
Yeah. I, I like the I like the one about the the tennis comparison thing. Yeah, the there are um several poems that were written by um Edward de Vere that you can Vere, so what Yeah. So my yeah, so what my book does it condenses a lot of the 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 things that we know about Edward de Vere. Um some symptoms or the made the classic symptoms of bipolar disorder. Um we see some of the sonnets by William Shakespeare. We compare them with the the poetry of De Vere, and um, I, th- I leave it for anyone to make up their mind. As you know, you're free to believe whatever. It's just that it seems that the circumstantial evidence, if you view it with an open mind, and here's what's interesting: there was once a um, uh, a, a research project done, an experiment where these researchers would uh, tell these workers, 12 workers, that this uh, new person, the new worker was a stingy, selfish guy. Then uh, they would have the, you know, this, this stranger um, actually perform um, acts that would indicate someone who was generous and uh, selfless. And then um, the researchers one week later asked the, the workers to answer this question. What was the stranger um, generous or stingy? And the answer was he was stingy, even more stingy than before. <laughs> so it's kind of like if you're given um, uh, that the conclusion was that uh, if that rumor and innuendo is stronger than what you see with your own eyes, basically, once you're told a certain thing, what to look for, that's what you will find. And so mm-hmm. when people come into like the authorship question asking, you know, who wrote it. A lot of times we've been built into, you know, like a given knee jerk reaction that William Shakespeare wrote the works of William Shakespeare without, uh, and, and wanting to hold on to that belief staunchly without looking at any evidence. And sometimes even after viewing the evidence, it makes no difference because the mind is already made up. Right. And um, one of the reasons why I think is because, it tells the classic story, the the David versus Goliath story, where you have this, uh, um, you know, um, country boy who's showing up all the city folks, and he's this genius who can just uh, magically know these different languages, know Latin um, by just uh, like quickly, um, you know, like at most. If William Shakespeare attended a school, it was for probably less than a year. But then the Stratford people say, well, the school year would start at um, seven in the morning and end at uh, six at night. Now, this guy still has to walk home (laughs) uh, five miles away. Uh, Let's not forget about that. So he would be leaving home at, what, five in the morning? And then the whole thing just does not make sense. Um, And um, but this is what we have been, you know, ingrained with really. Right. But well, I, I, uh, yeah. One of the things is that um, when you initially receive knowledge, it creates a pathway in your brain. And so what happens is to refute that knowledge is going to alter that pathway. And some people just, some brains are more resistant to alteration than others. Yeah. Well, you see it today with like election deniers, you know, they, mm-hmm. right. exactly. they're told to look for that. And when yeah. it's pointed out empirically that it's not there, there's no fraud. They still mm-hmm. cling flat to earthers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah Philip has a t-shirt. Uh, it's got all the planets and then the earth is flat. And it says, this is awkward. <laughs> <laughs> like a sponge in space, right? Or a square sponge. Yeah. yeah, square. You know what? I, I want them to just put in the, uh, the uh, what is it? Um, oh, what's that author I like? Someone, Terry Pratchett, the uh, per, or, uh, Discworld. Discworld. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you know about the Discworld. It's a disc traveling through space on the back of four elephants, which are standing on the great Atuin, which is a turtle flying through space. The great mystery of the disc world. There are two great mysteries. One, what is Atuin seeking? And two, is it a female? Because if it's going after a mate and it's a female, they might be in trouble. Hmm. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. We have to do one on that. Yeah, we could. Only 40 books. I'm open 
Huh? There's only yeah. 40 books to read. Get on it. Yep. Get on it. Huh? Well, I got a consultant <laughs> right here. <laughs> I'm actually a little behind on some of those books. I need to, I will absolutely get right on reading those Terry Pratchett books that I have missed. Ghost reader. That'd be I tell you what, what I enjoy um, when I watch uh, Shakespeare or, um, mm-hmm. I, and this yeah. is what I would encourage people to do is just put on mm-hmm. the subtitles when you're watching it. And then yeah. you kind of get it. You will understand it better. And P- yeah. assuming it's assuming it's not live, I was picturing something. Correct. Else. Yeah, <laughs> that works for me with uh, Hill Street Blues and yeah. anything else. You know. Yeah, um, and, and um, I mean, I'm not afraid to admit it. I've read my share of Shakespeare, but I I enjoy uh, being able to follow it along uh, with when you're watching Denzel or yeah. whoever is the uh, lead in the mm-hmm. Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. <laughs> right. three- yeah. Hamlet, I think he did. But um, ever been to the uh, Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum in Topanga. You know what? I went to a wedding there, but I haven't gone but, there. But you haven't gone there for a play. I saw a Midsummer yeah. Night's Dream there once. Oh, it's pretty awesome. But it's, yeah. it's a it's a great place to see some live Shakespeare. Oh yeah, definitely. Is it outdoors? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, an outdoor yeah, be... stage in the woods kinda. Yeah. Yeah, I think if we went to New York, I would like to at least try to uh go when we could catch Shakespeare in the park. Will Gear's an interesting character. He was um, Grandpa Walton, the actor that played Grandpa oh, yeah. Walton. Um, yeah. He was blackballed for being a communist, and mm. he created that place in Topanga for other blackballed actors to have a place to work. Oh, wow. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I always knew I liked Grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So He's a rebel. I, I kind of accept your... I kind of accept your theory that mm-hmm. it probably was not yeah. the person that's been attributed the the plays, and and you make a good case for William Devere. It's I think Edward Devere. <laughs> Edward Devere. I'm sorry. William Shakespeare. And uh, yeah, I said Alvere before, and that's a character in yeah. the Wheel of Time book I'm reading. That's why I mix those up. Yeah, I got my Johns, Williams, oh, yeah. and Edwards now, all mixed have up. Have you here. read? Have you seen the show yet, Aaron? Or are you waiting until you've read the book? I, or at least a book. I've read the first ten, no, twelve, or fourteen. Right. I, I read all of them by the original author, which went through right, eleven. Right. Then I watched the that first season, and I had to get the books one at a time from the library. And after I finished uh, Shaky last night, I started into the last book. Mm-hmm. the largest book which is it, it seems to me it's almost as big as two or three of the other ones they're all a thousand pages pretty much. oh well yeah i guess it's been a long time since i read the wheel of time was well, i'd say i was reading that when we got married back in 94 or 97 rather or no 94 that's right something so, else happened in 97 so, so. <laughs> Edward Devere, back to Phil's original. Edward Devere. Starting to ask. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think um, uh, my wild, uneducated, crazy speculation has always been uh, maybe it was a team of writers or maybe it was a guild of writers mm-hmm. uh, similar to, you know, without being Writer sacrilegious. Sim- similar to the way that the Bible was constructed, that they all kind of worked within the same iamic pentameters or whatever <laughs> and and tried and tried to style their writing in a similar fashion iambic parameters <laughs> <laughs> well i there said it go. was my uneducated guess no, so there you no, go I, I, go ahead sorry there is a lyrical quality too is there a chance know, is there a chance that the there that this, and... there was any credence to that that it may have been a, a, a group of okay. writers that uh, well um edward devere had uh, two secretaries, John Lyle and Anthony Munday, who were both gifted uh, playwrights on their own. <laughs> so uh, Munday was known for um, creating the p- plots, and John L- L- uh, Lily or Lily uh, was known for um, characters, you know, creating characters. So I, I think it's very possible that they could have had a team. And then w- when you look at the um, original um like henry the sixth play um Mm -hmm. okay edward devere um owned a house called fisher's folly and back Mm -hmm. then in the early 1580s they were trying to drum up support for uh, the queen's war effort back then um the queen had sent um roughly 30,000 men to the netherlands to fight the spanish over there so when 
1588, when the the Spanish-Anglo War or the the war that we remember as the Spanish Armada War happened, she was kind of short of of men. So the you know the idea was everybody and their brother uh, fight you know save our our country because um, Spain wanted to create uh, another country ruled by the Pope, basically. So um, the idea was let's get everybody on board with this. And because they had so many Catholics, they're secretly, uh, they called them recusants. They, they were afraid that they might turn on um, the Protestants in England. So they wanted to get everyone to support the war effort. And back then their mass media was really um, plays, writing plays, having uh, these stirring mm. um, kind of um, plays where we would, you know, talk about, uh, you know, standing up for our country and what our country means to us. And so they had all these men, uh, Thomas Nash, um, Sir Thomas North. Um, they had, they had just uh, a number, they called them the university wits. They were from, uh, um, Christopher Marlowe was one as well. So, uh, when you see today, uh, they credit Christopher Marlowe as being uh, a co-author of Henry the sixth, I think part three or something, but, um, so yeah, it, it is possible. They probably did it kind of like a you know a modern sitcom where the writers sit in the room. If you if you remember the old uh, Dick Van Dyke show, where yeah. uh, you know they just have a right. you know three writers Dally in the room Morgan. kind of thing. Yep. And that's what what it could have been with Edward Devere and Lily and um, Monday. I mean, they could have just said let's let's go with this one and uh, let's steal the plot from here and uh, and run with it. Right. Um, so. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, is there any other thoughts you have for Robert um, before we let him let him get have his time back? Is there anything? Let's go around the room. Um, okay. Well, uh, how about why don't you ask your question? Why don't you ask your questions? Okay. Um, is there anything? We'll usually ask why don't you ask your question, Leif? And uh, so I just kind of was like, hmm. Uh, is there anything that we didn't ask about or that you particularly would like to bring to the forefront? Um, the thing that I would like to bring to the forefront front is really a, a greater awareness of bipolar disorder, because mm-hmm. I think that it's um, a silent epidemic. I mean, um, currently it's approximately like two and a half percent. Originally. Yeah. I, I, got into um, writing Shaky's Madness because I was um, during the lockdown watching daytime TV and seeing all these commercials for Latuda, which um, helps people with bipolar symptoms. And I was just wondering like, how much does this stuff cost? Because they run so many commercials of it and uh, it costs $1,500 for a 30 day supply, which, um, you know, is a lot of money. And um, of course they've got their payment plans where they probably stick the, the balance to the the government or something, but um, it is costly. So um, that's really, uh, you know, I want people to become more aware of it and that um, it isn't if, if you're, uh, if you do endure bipolar disorder, I tried to avoid using the word suffer from it because it's kind of like you're dealt this hand and you're going to live your entire life with it. So, um, you know, it's not like you have a choice. Um, Yeah. And um so that maybe people are a little bit more compassionate. Um, and we realize that it just doesn't define a person that there are a lot of successful people who have lived, um, and endured, um, bipolar disorder as well. So, um, maybe yeah. that would inspire someone, um, to maybe start writing down their feelings and, uh, keeping a journal and just, uh, maybe that would be helpful to, to them. Yeah. Aaron, do you have any more thoughts for Robert? Yeah. Um, no, I enjoyed the book. Good work. Oh, thank you. Compilation. Yeah. Of, yeah. And it mm-hmm. seems well thought out. Right. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed the discussion we had here today. Is there anything? Good theory is as good a theory as any and better than most, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Do you have any uh, websites or social media you want to plug before we close it out here? Um, you can just uh, find me, um, robertboog.com. Um, and um, I'm on Facebook or uh, Twitter. You can just 
Oh, or YouTube. You can also uh, just punch in my name and something will show up. I have written some songs, so you might see some songs that I've written. Um, <laughs> yeah, I got into that just, uh, I don't know, just for the heck of it, I guess. So, yeah. um, music and lyrics or just the lyrics? You know what? I did the music. And, I, I can't, I do not play a musical instrument and mm-hmm. I can't. Uh, my wife says that I sound like a drunk Bob Dylan who's uh, <laughs> insisting he's okay to drive kind of thing. So when I say oh, that, that's not good. sound so good. <laughs> Although thinking about it, doesn't he always sound like that? I mean, really? He does. But, yes. Um, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. He always sounds drunk. Yeah. He, so, be the, he could have been the sixth Wilbury. There you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I just I, I send them off to people who can sing, and I sing into a voice recorder. It goes to a piano track, and then it goes to uh, a singer, and you know, then oh, it comes cool. out. So cool. Okay. So so Aaron would Bless would Jimmy James that. call that a drunk Bob Dylan? Would that be an oxymoron, Jimmy James? <laughs> by by the Jimmy by the not an oxymoron. Yeah. By, yeah. Um, like Swiss cheese, that was his. Like Swiss version. cheese. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I put it in the Jimmy James it, version. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's from a different podcast we did. But it's yeah. been great to have you on, man. Uh, uh, we'll let you go. We'll have your day back. It'll be yeah, on. Thanks for joining us. Okay, thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Phil. And right, uh, thank you. glad you're doing better, Lisa. Thank you. Okay, Lisa right. too. Good to see you. Phil. Bye. We have social Twitter. Yeah, uh huh. Pod Instagram. Yeah, uh huh. Pod Facebook. Yeah, uh huh. Pod website www.yeah-uh-huh.com. So let us know. Hit us back. Have a great week. Bye.